0: Today we have a very special guest and we have Tim Huang the chairman CEO co-founder of FiscalNote a global technology and media company focused on delivering timely and relevant policy information in a complex and evolving world FiscalNote's core technology sustains products and services that power more than 4000 clients from small nonprofits to government agencies to large corporations, including half of the Fortune 100, with software tools, AI-driven insights, comprehensive domestic and international datasets, as well as human authored news and analysis. The largest tech employer headquartered in Washington DC, that's badass, fiscal note, always maintains offices in New York City, but Baton Rouge, Belgium, India, and Korea. In his time at Fiscal Note, Tim has raised more than $230 in venture capital and acquisition financing from the likes of The Economist, S&P Global, Mark Cuban, Jerry Yang, Steve Case, NEA, and others. Very cool. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for being here, man. I know you're super, super busy, and uh, I appreciate your time,
1: and I appreciate you
0: sharing your journey, so thank you
1: yeah well, ha- happy to be helpful here
0: so uh, let's let's start with uh your journey uh, with fiscal note uh can you share a little bit about who what is fiscal Note? and who are its customers what problem are you helping them solve
1: yeah yeah um so fiscal note basically what we do is we are like the Bloomberg terminal or the crunch base or whatnot for laws and regulations right so essentially what we do is we collect um laws and regulations and court cases and government documents from uh, 80 different countries around the world. And then we use AI to be able to help people understand how those laws and regulations may potentially impact their business. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you are McDonald's and you're trying to understand food safety regulations in Brazil and uh, nutrition labeling regulations in Japan and um, you know, calorie requirements, you know and whatnot and food you know, uh, fast food regulations in Australia, You know, we're essentially helping their legal teams to understand how laws and regulations in each of those countries may potentially impact the way that they do business. And so um, the company operates um, with about 5,000 customers, enterprise customers today. Um, You know, we've got about half the Fortune 100, um, everyone from Goldman Sachs, Exxon Mobil, um, Microsoft, uh, FedEx, who are, you know, kind of using our platforms to understand data privacy regulations, ESG regulations, Customs, taxes, tariffs, you know, on our platforms. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, it's just, you know, basically that intersection between private sector and public sector. Um, And then, you know, a large number of government customers as well. So um, uh, DOD, FBI, CIA, um, uh, DOJ, the White House, um, every single member of the U.S. House and the Senate are customers of ours, as well as every governor on the the Federal Reserve. Um, And, uh, you know, they're using our platforms to understand, Taxes or changes in laws and regulations in in other countries or in other states.
0: Um, no, it makes I, complete sense and uh, a huge necessity, I would believe. When when you began fiscal note was was this was the original vision and and mission? Uh, everything you describe now, what it does, was that very much the a part of fiscal note when you got started?
1: I mean, we we basically have been doing everything. Um, we've been implementing our vision from the very beginning. Um, wow. So um, I would say like, I, I was recently looking at our business plan from like 2014. And I mean, it just hasn't really changed that much. I mean, we said start up in the US and then go to Europe and then Latin America and then Asia, which is essentially kind of where we are right now. And
0: <laughs> I love <laughs> what that. we're doing today. You don't tend to hear that as as much from uh, from a lot of other founders where there were certain pivots, um, were you bootstrapped before signing your first customer or was this, uh, you, you, you pitched this vision and idea and raised some capital beforehand.
1: We, we got our first customer before we raised our first round. Um, we had like a friends and family round of maybe, uh, I don't know, like $30,000 or something just to kind of get started. And then we built a product and got our first customer. And very quickly after that, we raised like, um, one point three million from Mark Cuban and Jerry Yang, um,
0: mm. and a, a couple others. And I, I want to get to that. So first off, the your ideal customer profile was that the same. It sounds like everything was the same from the get go. The same mission, the same vision. So who who was the first customer that you signed? Was was it uh, like a, a, a enterprise or was it a much smaller company? Or well, how did that go?
1: Yeah, they were um, like a mid defense contractor. So like um, they made like uh, military uniforms and like tank parts and stuff. And and so. Um, how the uh, hell think-
0: did you get in contact uh, <laughs> with a company? One like that. And two. Um, yeah. Can you walk me through? Do you remember how that sale was? Was that, you know, an email cold outreach email marketing campaign at the time? Or what? what did that look like?
1: I think it was I mean to be honest I think that first customer was like my CTO's professor college professor's friend who ran the company or something um, I love that uh but you know from there I mean we 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 did a pretty heavy like outreach I mean we we made literally like this this Google spreadsheet and filled it with um names and phone numbers and email addresses and just went to 711 bought those like prepaid burner phones and just cold (laughs) call like hundreds of people. I mean, that's really, that's how we got our first, probably first 10 customers or something like that.
0: Wow. So you were, you were jumping on calls too. Uh, Oh yeah. Like, like cold calling.
1: Yeah. Jumping on calls, coding myself. I mean, we were doing everything basically.
0: When did you know? um, So you signed that first customer in, uh, which was in the defense side. Did that automatically let you believe, okay, let's, let's stick around within this particular segment and kind of grow from here. Or what was your go-to-market strategy at the time?
1: We are more focused on the problem and who would get the most benefit from the, the solution that we had. And mm-hmm. so we were very focused on like regulatory professionals and people who looked at regulations all day. And so that was like, um, it didn't really, so then we, we really focused on what we call like heavily regulated sectors mm. um, where the business impact of changing regulations be very high. So like defense, obviously, you know, I mean, it's their entire revenue is tied to the buying process or the regulatory process or something. Um, I think like the next two customers were in the energy space. Um, uh, and then like the next two or three customers were in the healthcare space. Um, and so they're all like these sectors where like people just have an, an enormous amount of regulatory um change and pressure within their organizations. And so that, that's kind of where we focused in, I think, overall.
0: When when did you know that you had product market fit? That you 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 made it that far? Was there a particular metric you were following? Were you know when when was was there a particular aha moment where you're like, oh my God, the amount of demand that is coming in? And I don't know if it's because because this were much bigger, uh, whether it's enterprise or higher-end, uh, mid-size clients, and a sell cycle was longer, did that ever feel like you had hit product market
1: fit? No, I mean, I think we just kind of... There wasn't like a, a aha moment. We just kind of kept getting customer after customer. And it wasn't like... I felt like every customer was so hard to get. So it wasn't <laughs> like... Um, like there was, we opened this thing up and we had a flood of customers. I mean, we
0: uh,
1: first customer and then we got two more course customers next month and then maybe three customers the following month. Um, and then by the time we finished up the first year in business, we were probably at like, I don't know, 700,000 ARR. And then the next year we we're doing like two and a half or something. So it was like, amazing. I, mean, I don't want to call it linear, but it was kind of, you know, we kind of knew how the business was progressing. And, um, you know, even to this day, like I don't, I don't take product market fit for granted, you know, like we're doing 140, 150 million ARR. And like, I, um, uh, I, I tell us
0: incredible, man.
1: (laughs) Does that, do you sit,
0: take a moment and say, you know, I mean, this is not too long ago. I mean, 2014, you said is, is when the company, I mean, uh, I, I guess, you know, we're, we're about to be, so it's 10 years. So it'll be 10 year anniversary coming up soon, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, basically. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I, you know, I you take
0: I, from zero to over a hundred and something. And, and like, that's, that's incredible. So few people, uh, individuals get to do that. Um, so, I mean, does that, does that, uh, I know it's a progression, right? So everything kind of becomes normal, but, uh, how do you feel about that?
1: No, I mean, it's a great accomplishment for sure. I mean, I, um, I mean, obviously our team is very focused on getting to a billion dollars in AR right now, right? So like that's, (laughs) there's always the next milestone to climb. But um, right now I would say like, um, yeah, I mean, like when we were going through the process of like building the company, I mean, it wasn't, there were certainly times where it felt like things were moving very quickly. um, But most of it was just a slog. I mean, just like staying in the office late and, you know, closing out customers and responding to customer emails and like, you know, first year you maybe have like 20 customers and the following year a hundred customers. And, you know, you just kind of like grind every year. And so. <laughs> I love you know, that. I mean, yeah. it was, just kinda, it just kind of all layered on at the end, you know? And, and so we're still, I mean, we're still going to this day.
0: Did, uh, did your pricing model change uh, or did that remain very similar from the get-go?
1: It, it remained relatively similar. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, we charged on a per data set and a per user basis. Um, and um, I think throughout the last, you know, like couple of years that we've been in business, like things have kind of fluctuated a little bit in the sense that um, maybe, uh, you know, in the beginning part of um, the early 2010s and so, uh, mm-hmm. like 2014, 2015, there was a heavy emphasis on, on number of users. And then like, you know, 2018, 2019, that started shifting away towards like content and usage. Um, and so, but, you know, ultimately the pricing model has been relatively the same.
0: Any advice for founders who are in their very first stages of, of, of companies, you know, when they're looking to sign that first customer, any particular advice that comes to mind?
1: Um, I, I, I just, I think we, we, you know, for us, we took a very scientific method hypothesis driven approach. Um, And so we sort of had like, um, five hypotheses around like ideal customer profile. Um, and then we just validated that hypothesis with like data um, to identify whether that hypothesis was true or not. And so like literally, like I sat in front of a whiteboard and I said like, here are the five types or 10 types of customer uh, profiles, size and industry and price points and willingness to pay that we felt like we had a general direction hypothesis on. And then let's go talk to, 50 or 100 prospects in that in each of these hypotheses to validate whether this is true or not um mm. so uh it's just been very methodical about it i mean i'm sure most founders are it's just um uh you know and, and some maybe sometimes people just go out and like talk to as many people as they can but i think in our case we're like extremely methodical about we want you know deputy general counsel at mid-sized energy company you know um willingness to pay at thirty thousand dollars or whatever and then we like. Barreled our way and sort of analyzed whether or not that was true or not in each segment.
0: Hmm. I love that. Let I want to jump into uh, product strategy, customer feedback. You you've emphasized in in interviews in the past on the rigorous process of customer validation and iterative um, product development. How how did you set up? Receiving and incorporating customer feedback in your products in the early days. I mean, you 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 mentioned that you're slugging it out, right? You're you're cat- looking at those emails, getting back that feedback. How do you take that, and how do you incorporate it as part of as the evolution of the product?
1: So I think in the really really early days, for like the first ten customers, um, I mean, we literally had a spreadsheet for each customer, and then we we basically called it a gap to goal analysis of like what the customer requested. How urgent and priority, high priority is it for them? And then um, what's the scoping and level of resources required for this? So mm. it literally sort of like had an like a minimum product and then basically gap to goal, gap to goal, gap to goal over and over and over again. And then basically got to, you know, the, the functionality that we needed. Um, um, from there, you know, it's really thinking about like developing a process for customer feedback and then um, an internal process for prioritization. And so know if customers asking for um you know certain feature functionality or or this button somewhere or whatever being able to sort of take all that feedback and then meticulously every week every month every quarter analyze the the feedback of that um you know into kind of demonstrable um, themes that that kind of may you know drive improvements for customers overall so um uh you know you you can sort of take any number of approaches on this like you know um, if you're in a very competitive market, you know maybe you're trying to drive after differentiation, and so you you prioritize internally products that drive differentiation. Um, maybe if you are in a more um, fast moving but less competitive market, um, then you you drive um, you know a heavy level of innovation. Um, uh, maybe if you have very long sales cycles, uh, or or sorry, if you have if you have kind of um, high churn, you know within your business, then you focus on stickiness of of feature and functionality. So the business objectives or whatever you're trying to accomplish are, are kind of aligning with your product goals. Um, but uh, my, my view is that like the product direction is the manifestation of the custom company strategy. So like, um, you know, if you're a FinTech company and you offer credit cards, you know, you can build a continuously build a better credit card product, or you could say we we want to pivot or we want to, we want to add accounts or payments, you know, in addition. Right. So, the 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 fact that you made that particular decision to either double down in this market or to you know expand your market or whatever it is mm-hmm. like that is a that is a explicit outcome of your product strategy and that is the product strategy is the business strategy at the end of the day
0: how were there and there there are always competitors uh, i'm very curious to know when you were getting started when you were signing up these customers were there at that moment, a number of competitors that were in your radar as well. And they were also gaining and, and signing, or was that a, was that something that you're like, whatever, they're doing their thing. We're doing our thing. And we're just concentrated or, you know, what are your thoughts about keeping an eye on competitors and understanding what's available in the market?
1: Um, I mean, I don't think competitors matters that matter that much. I mean, unless you're like in a, uh, unless you have a boatload of capital and you need to tr- you deliver on some outcomes, and there's like you know you're you're trying to build the next large language model, um, you know, or um, you're in like a complete red ocean market, um, you know. For us, at least, I, I mean, I can only speak for the fiscal experience. I mean, we had some competitors, but they were sort of like really, really old incumbent competitors that were like. 30, 40, 50 years old, you know, as, oh, as so
0: it. they had been there a while. They hadn't done much uh, innovation within that's sp- within their, their time.
1: Yeah. They're like um, print companies that transition or trying to transition online or like, you know, um, consulting companies or law firm types that were trying to offer similar <clears throat> digital services, but like, we were the only venture backed startup in our space. Um, and so mm. Like we, we came out to market with a completely new solution, um, you know, started barreling through customers and winning them over from competitors. Um, and uh, I, I don't think I thought that much about competition. I mean, I, to, to this day, I don't think about that much about competition. It's not like on the, on the number of like business risk concerns, it's like number 10. It's like, it's not something.
0: <laughs> that. The, let's talk about you. You you mentioned you're venture backed and one of the few within the space that are venture backed. So, Fundraising, partnerships, uh, Fiscal Note, uh, raked in over 230 million from a lot of different partners, uh, including a lot of names that we mentioned before, big names. Could you give us some insights into the fundraising journey uh, when you set out to fundraise and we can cover, um I love to highlight the beginning of this, right? When those first uh, experiences fundraising, and then uh, maybe if, if there's certain things that you want to add to it uh, within the journey, but can you give me, what do you do? How do you, how do you make sure that you set yourself up for success when you go out there for fundraising?
1: Um, so um. I think that you need to talk to investors who are interested in your business. I mean, I I know that sounds like really dumb, but like, um, uh, like like founders, right? So founders are you know there's different types of founders, right? There's consumer founders and marketplace founders and crypto founders, fintech founders. You know, I consider myself like an enterprise B two B founder. Like, the level of um, like I, I I don't know anything about marketplaces or like I don't know anything about crypto. I mean, I mean, I know enough, but like I would never be able to start a crypto company. You know, mm-hmm. um, expertise. Um, very similarly, uh, investors are the same way. You know, like. There's very 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 few generalist investors. Um, you know, most investors today specialize in. Oh, I'm a consumer VC, or I'm an enterprise VC, I'm a crypto VC, I'm a fintech VC, a healthcare VC, and so a lot of first-time founders what I see is that they just pitch every VC they can meet, um, <laughs> and they don't spend time like focusing on people that you know have expertise in their space. Um, um, and this is even more so today than it was like um, you know ten years ago when I when I started you know, in the early 2010s, there was not that many VCs. I mean, there were like 30 or 40 institutional VCs. And then there's like a bunch of these like very, very, very tiny like angel syndicates and like business groups and stuff that you'd like pitch at like, you know, eight in the evening and a bunch of like lawyers would show up and they'd put <laughs> yeah. that Yeah, <was, laughs> that's that a was great like, description. <laughs> yeah, No, that was like the venture landscape, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've experienced that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so like, And then, and then for some reason, I don't know what it was like, you know, um, over the last 10 years or so, like there's, there's like a thousand VCs now, like, and they're all like, you know, 30, 40, $50 million VCs that specialize in like this stage and the sector and this industry, you know, whatever. And so, um, now like, you know, the VC game has gotten so specialized, like in terms of what people focus in on. Um, but, you know, so going back to our early fiscal note, like, you know, um, I probably pitched like every major Sandhill VC in the market, got rejected from all of them, almost all of them. Um, you know, the way that we got our first round was I I cold emailed Mark Cuban. You know, he responded, wrote the first check. Um, and then, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Mark Mark came in and then Jerry Yang came in and then NEA wrote in a check as well. And, and like, that was our first $1.3 million. Um, and then, you know, our A and our B and our C were kind of like, we raised, we raised, around like maybe every 12 to 18 months and then we just kind of kept scaling the business every year and so um i mean it was it was really interesting i mean it was like um i mean there's certainly a lot of war stories in there but like you know it was definitely to the point where we are you know potentially running out of cash like maybe three or four times and um i mean it was it was definitely um i i think we raised up to our series f before we went public overall
0: wow wow what throughout the a b c um i know that each phase brings its own difficulties and challenges um is there a particular phase and you mentioned war story but is there is there that you went through a number of them but is there um any advice you would give you to yourself if you if with hindsight going back whether it was back to your A or back to your B or back to your C that you would say, I, I I might have done this a little bit differently or founders that are already on their B going to their C, you know, think about the following and any, any type of advice or thoughts you have for that.
1: Um, I would, I would just say that. Um, you should always raise a little bit more capital than you expect um, you would need. And. Um, uh if you find a, a VC or an investor who is like really a big backer of your business, um, like, uh, like a really big cheerleader, like those folks are going to be in, extremely invaluable. Like, um, you know, our, our lead series a investor, you know, I, I mean, every round has been great. Like all of our, all of our investors, I, I, have been very proud to have partnered with them. Um, and you know, like, I'm. but you pers- had
0: one, for instance, a series a that, when things got really tough and rough, they, 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 they showed their colors and, and they backed you up.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they, they backed up our series C, you know, round and like, um, let's
0: give him a shout out. Who, who's a, who's an investor? What, what, what,
1: uh, what fund well, is a, a guy named Keith Nielsen. Um, and he was, he was on his first, on his first fund at the time. Uh, but you know, like he, he basically helped us out. Like I mean, he still sits on our board today. And so that's um, awesome. So Keith, um, Keith Keith was really great. And, you know, I think when you look at other, other uh, VCs and the like, you know, that led our B and our C and our D, like all of them have been like amazing to work with. And so um, I, the, the qualitative factors around like picking a partner and picking an investor are hard to describe um, mm. because I think that like capital is capital for sure. But then like working with really great value add investors like help, you know, accelerate customer development, um, you know, make key partnerships, bring in, you know, key executives, like that's, that's like really invaluable stuff at the end of the day.
0: You, I want to cover the, when you went public, the public offering, uh, like I mentioned, that's very few founders get to experience that from starting, some with with zero and taking a company public and going through all those challenges as you grow in scale and, and making it there um any one is any particular highs and lows that you remember <laughs> during that ride when you were thinking of going public and and the other question is when did you realize like now it's time to go public and why was that the right moment
1: you know, I think um uh, we were we are approaching a hundred million dollars in ARR, like maybe 2021. Um and uh I, I I'd say that you know we should probably think about taking the company public now. Um and I mean it's always been sort of a goal of mine to try and you know get to the public markets and you know kind of create something long and, and durational in the future. And so um the process is quite complicated and you know, we'll get into that, but like, you know hiring the investment bank and working with the accounting firms and hiring the law firms, and then working through all that process and and the like probably takes from start to finish about year and a half to two years. Um, Mm. um, uh, you know, it's not an easy task and it's, it's very time consuming. Um, but, uh, it, I would say in the process of doing that definitely levels the, the discipline of the company up administratively, um, and tightens the screws, even at the higher levels of the business on a, much more um uh disciplined basis right in, th- in terms of thinking like about uh, revenue estimations and and um cost planning and and um uh investments you know in certain product lines and and things like that like those things you have to be very uh like when you're a private company it's sort of like you know oh you know like we set a number we're going to hit 200 million ARR this year and then we come like we grew from 150 to 190. It's like, okay, great. It's still, It's still great. We grew, you know, $40 million in ARR, you know? Um, yeah. I think in that, in that, in, the, in that particular case, in the public markets would be like, um, you know, you, you probably failed at forecasting. Exactly.
0: Failure, massive failure. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and so, uh, you know, I think that's, that's like one of those things where you have to level up your accounting and planning functions and like, you know um, all, all those things that sort of like make the business a lot more disciplined at the end of the day.
0: For actually related to the board, when did you when did you start bringing on uh, board members or ad, advisors? Was that in the Series A, and Series B?
1: Yeah, I mean we we started bringing on advisors. I mean, obviously with our Series A investor and whatnot. But um, by the time we were a Series D company, um, I think we were like fully majority independent. Um, so. Mm-hmm as in like, I, I still control over the board, but, um, you know, like the invest, the, the board members themselves were not investors. They were like independent people that we had brought on, um, you know, to have a certain level of expertise. And so like we had somebody who was, um, an expert in legal, we brought in the general counsel of LinkedIn, you know, we had somebody mm-hmm. who was an expert in sales, who was leading sales at VMware, you know, we had somebody um, who was an expert in operations leadership. We brought in, um, General stem crystal, and so they're sort of like very wow, that's like awesome. Very, yeah, leader oriented folks, and then sort of built like even a, a a team even above the senior leadership team could kind of help lead the business.
0: Uh, has uh, any best best in class any anything that has worked for you when it comes to board members? Because not a lot of not a lot of founders uh, get to share uh, on those experiences for, for founders that are thinking or growing their board or anything, any, any questions they should be asking themselves or things they should be aware of?
1: I, th- I think a lot about competencies in the board. So like there are competencies that you need to have, and then there's competencies that you would probably want to have. Right. So, um, you need to have financial competency on the board. Um, and you need to have, um, legal competency and audit and accounting competency. Like that's like a, given you know like given the responsibilities of the board um but so those are like the core capabilities that you need um but beyond that like it would be great to have somebody with product experience you know at at a big company that like understands your, your space understands the market right somebody who understands go to market in your space like you know that can you can pick up a phone and call like the chief revenue officer at salesforce or at you know oracle or whatever microsoft and they can sort of give you best in class expertise around how to structure your sales organization or, um, someone who's really great at, um, like people management and HR and like, you know, ran, you know, like, uh, the HR function hiring 10,000 people at meta or something like that. I don't know. Like it's just as an example, like you you want people who are the the best in the world at something. And then to be able to kind of provide assistance and guidance to helping the company. Um, one of our board members today, her name is Anna Sedgley. Mm-hmm. She was the president and chief operating officer at, at Dow Jones. Um, and, uh, you know, oversaw like the Dow Jones Indices and like the Wall Street Journals, the other things like, you know, which is an adjacent business to our category. Um, and, you know, kind of like has like industry knowledge and expertise, but also like in the weeds operations on um, technology transformation and engineering, product management and other things that, you know, beyond just like, hey, let's meet on a quarterly basis and approve the budget. Like, you know, you can actually have, you know, really strategic conversations about, you know, the, the performance of the company and some of the challenges and whatnot. So, you know, I, I think building a great board is definitely a huge value add for sure.
0: Would you ever, have you ever thought or would you ever in the future think about bringing it back private again? Are, are there certain pros and cons that make a lot more sense to you now than before?
1: Well, um, you know, I actually announced about two weeks ago that uh, I have an intention to, Uh, take the company private again. Um, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I I can't comment too much on that. (laughs) Um, but I what what I will say is um, um, the job of a public company CEO is very different from private company CEO. Like private company CEO, you're in the weeds and operations, like building product, talking to customers, all that stuff. Um, the job of public company CEO is very different. Like you're managing Wall Street analyst expectations. Like you're spending a lot of time at investor conferences. Uh, one-on-one meetings with hedge fund managers and asset managers and portfolio managers, um, you know, answering questions around the stock and around the company's performance and whatnot. So it's no it's longer very- what your customers
0: need and care about, but it's what someone else might do on a trade that might send a signal that might be negative, that might send the stock down. So that there's there's other individuals in the mix now that before you didn't have to, yeah. to
1: appease, I'm guessing. I mean, you're still responsible for that, like the, the, the product and the customers. And so you, you know, you are still engaged in like product management and, you know, uh, revenue funnel optimization and stuff, but you now have like, by the time you're public, you have a pretty broad team. Mm -hmm. You've got like a very long bench of like executives who are kind of doing that. And your job is to kind of monitor things as things are progressing um, and then set the vision for the year and for the three-year mark and the 10-year mark and where the company's growing. But right now, um, you know, especially in the first year of going public and the first, you know, it's just a lot of market education. so um I, you know, I think you know I, I obviously made you know an announcement a couple of weeks ago, I mean, we'll see what happens, but that's kind of that's what I think overall
0: great. Uh, you scaled fairly quickly, right? Every uh, you mentioned from the series A to series B to series C, each round uh, growing, reaching those new targets. what? What advice, uh, if you're looking back, what advice would you give another founder that finds that him or herself in a situation where they're growing at that type of rapid pace? When it comes to talent, when it comes to uh, a, a customer acquisition or customer success, you know what what are different areas when it comes to scaling that you would definitely immediately give some advice on. Um.
1: I guess uh in my in my kind of reflection of of the last couple of years, um at the end of the day, business is like it comes down to two things um it's um building a great product and s- distributing it to customers um and everything else you know is just a function of those two things. so um you hire people because you want to build great products and sell to customers. you raise capital because you want to build more great products and sell to more customers. You know, you develop an operating culture and a system and processes because you want to get more efficient at building product and selling to customers. So, um, like, I kind of view these like two wheels of like operations. And it's really just a function of like making sure those wheels keep turning um, and get, you know, kind of more efficient and bigger. Um, you know, I think people try and like, it's really easy to think that you're really busy all the time. <laughs> um, like, you know, cause they're just in meetings all the time and like right. reaching out to you and there's like a bunch of stuff you got to do and like, you know, stuff, but ultimately at the end of the day, when you're like, you know, by yourself and like thinking about the business and the like, you know, you should really be thinking about, you know, am I building a great product an incrementally better and better product for my customers? Um, and, uh, you know am i going am i uh building a system that's more and more efficient at, at attracting customers to our business like that's that's it like i mean you know if i was a, if i was a fortune 100 ceo i would probably i think the same exact thing like if i was cf ceo of like mcdonald's or gm or whatever i would think like you know how are we developing systems and people and, you know and you know and attracting capital to essentially develop better and better products and then um uh Do we have the right people and talent and culture and whatnot, you know, to be able to get the products in front of our customers and create a great customer experience? Like, that's it. Like, and that's, that's, as long as you kind of stay focused on that, I think that's, that's really, you know, kind of what what I've tried to kind of stay, um, grounded in overall. When
0: did you decide it was time to target, uh, international or expand internationally?
1: I think it was like 2018 or 2019. Um, so
0: yeah, like five years, five years into the growth of the company. And and what what was the original thought or rationale or questions that were going through your head when you say, one, it's time to go internationally. And two, what is gonna be our is 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 our go-to-market uh, same, uh, as, as what we use here and worked here, or, you know, what, what were some of the first things that you started thinking about asking yourself and asking others?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think at the time, uh, I'm trying to remember this. We, we had enough scale in the business in North America where we had like a full leadership team, like every function covered and like there's teams and they're executing and, you know, we were probably like uh, 20, 25, 30, going on 30 in ARR. And so um, I said, you know, maybe it's about time for us to start thinking about, you know, generating a little bit of revenue out of the European market. And so it wasn't even that complicated. I probably hired like three people and I'd go told them to go sit in London and Brussels and like, you know, just go scope out the market, create a plan and then come back to me. Um, And we started getting some customers and we made a very small acquisition, like a ten, like a very micro acquisition, like a 10-person team in the European market, um, and then used that as a base to start building out like a leadership team and stuff. So um, it was just sort of, I don't know if there was like a deliberate point. It was just sort of like, you know, we have the basic operations set up in North America, and we sort of see the pathway to go from 20 to 30 to 50 to 100 um, just by adding more headcounts and putting more resources. Mm. Uh, I think um, as we were thinking about the growth um into uh you know the european market it was just sort of like you know let's let's put together a plan and then see see how we can execute on this.
0: Had uh has the acquisitions of smaller companies every time you join a new market, has that been a thing? Or did it just occur in in when you were first joining the European market?
1: No, we did the same thing in Australia and then we did the same thing in um uh, in, in Korea and then in in Singapore. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll try and find like a small 10, 15 person entrepreneurial company that has maybe like, you know, a couple dozen or you know, maybe a hundred customers or something like that, you know, uh, bolt them on, start applying real resources and marketing and go to market of our kind of mothership. Um, and then try and drive the business like right there. Um, and so, uh, like, I don't, I don't think we make like big splashy acquisitions and huge markets. Like, I think we try and go out and and like really create, um, like, uh, a beachhead and then try and expand from there.
0: Does, uh, does the company still have a, a corporate venture arm?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we have, we've made a lot of acquisitions and, you know, some strategic investments and the like. Um, and so we definitely are very active in trying to find innovation and growth for for sure.
0: And, uh individually uh are, are you still out there very active angel investing as well or no
1: i, I wouldn't consider myself like an active active angel investor but I, I mean i like i you know i i'm always talking to founders and like you know you know um occasionally we'll put in a check or something but i think generally um i'm pretty plugged into the early stage scene overall got it
0: uh anything else you want to share that we didn't get to cover uh it could be Initiatives, it could be things related to the company, talent, anything that you're looking for uh, to to give a shout out and and for all the other founders to know and hear.
1: Um, I think you know ultimately, like um, culture matters quite a bit. and so you know we've spent a lot of time at fiscal and thinking about company culture and values and um and all these different things. and so um you know, the formula is quite simple, right? In terms of building a great companies, like you have a great idea, you, crack, you attract great people, you know who great who build great products, and then deliver a great customer experience for customers. Like that's that's like the formula basically for building a great business. And so, um, uh, creating an environment where you know uh, hardworking, smart people can succeed, I think is is something that you know I've tried to do, and um, it's something that you know we're we're very focused on. I think has been a really great driver of our business.
0: Tim, when was the first time that you brought in an HR person when you got
1: started? Uh, we, we never, I guess we, or we, yeah.
0: Or if I'm sure you did at some point,
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we, we had a ops person within our first 10 hires. Um, mm. and that person like did handle like everything from like office operations to running payroll and, and all that stuff. Um, um, uh, I think we probably brought in like a real HR person after our A, maybe going into our B somewhere in that range.
0: Mm. Would you, in hindsight, did did it make a massive difference? Uh, the without that title, you mentioned there was operation individual that was kind of already handling, you know, the the whole culture, the organizational, uh, operational piece to, and and I guess the legal, all those things that make up HR, would you have brought it earlier in hindsight or, or that it, in your case, it worked out, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't do it differently.
1: I think, I think the way that we did, it was about the right time for us.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, uh, all right. Well, all the best. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye.